Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. If that didn't sell you, I don't know what will, all right? Register for the retreat. We actually only have a couple spaces left. Um, we were allotted a certain amount because we are going with the other Hope churches. Um, so don't delay anymore. Register. Will you join me in prayer before we start? Um, it's, it's so crazy. It's uh, the state of our world where um, the Las Vegas shootings seem like they happened so long ago, and it wasn't even a full week, uh, how fast things move, um, which I think is, is not good, because if we're going to be a people of substance, and we talk about this often uh, at the church, I heard a professor say one time that the greatest act of faith is to remember that what, what Jews, and we'll talk about this today, what Jews and what Christians are called to do is to remember who their God is and what their God has done. And so if we're going to be a people of substance, we have to have the skills necessary to remember. Um, and so I just want to pause and pray for Las Vegas and pray for uh, the families of those um, who, who lost someone and for um, another tragedy in our country. So we pray with me. Father, uh, we confess again that words fall short, that answers don't come, and that we're left looking at bodies on the ground and with tears in our eyes and questions in our hearts. And us, as your people, uh, we, we cry out, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, will you wait? How long, O Lord, will you wait? When will you come? When will you finish your work, Jesus? When, you, when will you wipe every tear? When will you do away with every fearful impulse in our heart? When will we be people of love and generosity, unable to fear our neighbor, unable to fear the other. We wait for that, and we know it's only found in you. And we also know, Lord, um, that you've equipped your church to be a foretaste of that. Lord, we lift up um, the families of those who lost someone or uh, have someone who's injured right now. We just pray for your peace that surpasses all understanding to fill them. We pray for the church in Las Vegas to be mobilized, to serve, to care for, uh, to speak out, to be people of your new kingdom, to be people of love and grace and forgiveness in a world that only knows violence. We are not afraid to mourn, Lord, because we realize that the, the chapter of your story that we most remember is both death and resurrection. And so we don't run too quickly to the hope of the resurrection. Though it is a hope that fills us with tremendous joy, we don't run there. We sit in the tragedy and the senselessness of death today. It was never to have been a part of your creation. But it is. And so we sit in it. And we mourn with those who mourn. And we pray, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. Lord, equip Hope Brooklyn to be a people of the new kingdom. Equip us to serve our neighborhoods well, to love justice, to seek mercy, not just with words, but with action. And we do turn our eyes fully upon your cross and your empty tomb, Lord, your resurrection. And we say, come soon. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're joining us for the first time, welcome. My name is Russell. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we are a new community of faith uh, that lives by the tagline, wherever you are on your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. And those aren't just words for us. Uh, that's an embodied practice that we have people in this room um, who would look at the story of Jesus and say, I know that guy, 
He's, he's the savior, he's the king, I'm following him, I'm learning what it means to follow him. And we have people in this room who would not say that. Be like, I don't know who this guy is yet. I mean, I'm, I'm compelled by some of the things he's about, but you know, I'm, I'm feeling it out. And both are equally welcome and equally needed. And so it's just our way of saying wherever you are, whatever doubts, whatever questions you have, you don't have to have it all figured out. I sure don't. Uh, you don't have to have all the answers. Just come, be present, share a meal. Um, ask questions, and uh, let's hear one another's story. So we're just so grateful that you're here. Um, for the new people and the rest of us, we are jumping back in to a series that we were going through this past summer called The Paradigm. Um, I can hear the collective excitement in the room. I'm just as excited as you are, guys. <laughs> uh, we, we took a break, um, and we went through a mini-series in September called Faith and Work, which explored uh, the gospel uh, in our work lives. And then last week, Eddie Everett spoke on folklore and the Good Samaritan, and it was really awesome. Something else Anna um, uh, forgot to mention, we, we raised money with folklore for the Brooklyn Bail Fund. And so we ended up raising $170, and then Hope Brooklyn's going to match it. So we're going to give $340 to the Brooklyn Bail Fund, which is really cool. Um, and we're really excited about that. Um, but we're jumping back into the paradigm. And the paradigm is exploring the book of Exodus. And our contention is that Exodus is the one story. Exodus is the meta-narrative, so to speak. That any people from any age, any time, whether they would call themselves a follower of the God of Israel or not, they can look into this story and they can find themselves. They can find their world. And where we left off, like five weeks ago, uh, was in a very climatic portion of the story. It was Exodus 19 and 20. So recap, uh, Israel was in slavery in Egypt for 430 years. Uh, God, they cried out under their slavery. God sent Moses, who was a mediator, and he uh, liberated Israel out of slavery. They've um, come out of Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea. The Egyptians were drowned in the Red Sea, and so they've passed the point of no return. They are now fully and unequivocally God's. We said that this is not just a story of liberation. This is a story of salvation. God did not liberate Israel out of an unjust system and said, okay, now you're free to be autonomous beings. No, no, no. He said, no, now you're free to be servants of me. But I'm not going to treat you like a slave. I'm going to treat you like children. We talked about this, this false, this illusion of autonomy. There's, there's no such thing. Um, humans are not able to be fully autonomous, fully free. We are only able to be free insofar as that we are in relationship and subjecting ourselves in freedom to another. Uh, the Hebrew word for that is avad. Uh, we're always avads. We're always servants. And so the Israelites came out of Egypt, and now they're free to serve the living God. And then they sort of stumbled. They took the first steps of freedom, and they were stumbling around, as you would expect for anyone who just came out of 430 years of slavery. And then they reached Mount Sinai. That's where we left off last time. They reached Mount Sinai, and it's the mountain of the Lord. And at Mount Sinai, we're told that God gave Moses to give Israel the law. And it was two chapters we read. We read Exodus 19 and Exodus 20. And we said we can't separate the two. They're, they're all one corpus, so to speak. So it started in Exodus 19, where God says he almost offered a prologue. And he said, remember what I did for you in Egypt. Remember how I brought you out. And that was an important point because that was God saying to Israelites, you don't earn your salvation. You remember it. And this was to sort of debunk a misconception that many of us have, that I grew up having. If you were asked, how is Israel saved? You would have said, by keeping the law. Well, in this story, it's, that's absolutely not true. They were saved because they put the blood over their doorframe while in Egypt. They were saved because God acted upon them while in Egypt. They were saved because they followed this guy Moses out of Egypt. They were already adopted into God's family. The law, the Ten Commandments, and we're going to get into more of that today. The law is simply the response of someone who already knows that they are fully in God's family. It's almost as if God adopted Israel and said, hey, now you're part of my family. Let me tell you what it's like. Let me tell you what it means to bear this name, to be part of the family. The law is not how they earn their salvation. And you need to hear that today. It's the same with us as Christians. 
You don't earn your right standing with God. You know what we do? We look upon the cross. We remember what Jesus has done. We remember the blood yet again. We remember the story. And we gaze upon that cross and that puts us in right standing with God. And then, knowing that, that we are adopted into the family by God's act, we are freed up to, to live into this new way of life. So they were given, first, the first thing in Exodus 19, they were given a call to remember. And then they were given a mission statement. God says through Moses, you are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And we talked about that and we said, uh, that sort of debunks the idea that the law is burdensome for Israel. It's not. It's not. The law is burdensome for us because we don't like laws. That, that word for us, law, connotes uh, legalism, sort of this cold, uh, this coldness. Actually, the, a better word in the Hebrew would be Torah um, or Torah. I always said Torah, but then I got in seminary and everyone said Torah. And I was like, ooh, these smart people are saying it differently. So I'm going to say it that way. That's like the uh, Augustine-Augustine debate. Who knows, you know? I, I don't know. Um, but the Torah is the Hebrew word, and it means teaching. So in a sense, the law is rather like a philosophy. It's a way of life. It's not burdensome. It's, it's joyous. It's a joyful response of knowing that they've been adopted into God's family. And then... The last part of the law, and most familiar for us in Exodus 20, are the Ten Commandments. And they come in this really uh, prohibitive statement, right? You shall not have any other gods instead of me. You shall not make idols. You, um, you shall honor the Sabbath. And we wondered, why does it come in these prohibitive statements, especially if it's not a burden? And there's a certain amount of recognizing the context that these Israelites just came out of slavery, that they have been in this very skewed social and cultural and political context for the last 430 years. Uh, I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis, something he said. He goes, if you ever stumble upon a, a severely malnourished man, your first instinct is going to be to provide him a five-course meal and feed him back to life. And he goes, if you do that, you will kill him. His stomach can't handle that yet. Rather, he slowly has to stretch his stomach back out, slowly provide nutrients and bring him back to life. Sort of the same idea. In a sense, God is slowly, and in a language that Israel would understand, offering the contours of his, of his life, of his face, to bring Israel into their new identity as, their, as his people. And so this whole thing, what we summed it up as, as we said, the gift of the law is rather or really, the gift of God's face. God is revealing to Israel in a way that he hasn't revealed to other people, his face. And so today, what we're jumping into, we've finished 19 and 20, we're going through Exodus 20, the tail end of 20 through 23, which uh, historically is called the Book of the Covenant. The Book of the Covenant. Today, we're getting into the nuts and bolts of the law, right? I know all the lawyers in the room are like, oh, yes, I'm so excited. Well, maybe if you're like in 1L. If you're in 2L, you're like, no, kill me now. Um, and for the rest of us, we're like, oh my gosh, what do we do with this? And so to give you sort of like a random sampling of what we're looking at in these three chapters, this is what I did, because we're not going to read the whole thing. Um, all of it, all three chapters in the Book of the Covenant, they read sort of the same way. And so what I did is I, I did the very um, scientific, you know, close the eyes and uh, boop. And this verse came up as a random sampling. If a thief is found breaking in and is beaten to death, no guilt is incurred. But if it happens after sunrise, guilt is incurred. And the rest of it reads just like that. So the question for us is, cool, <laughs> what do we do with this? How is this the paradigm? Because in a sense, what we're getting at is if the Ten Commandments are sort of the broad, sweeping skeleton of God's face. The book of the covenant, these next three chapters, are kind of adding flesh to the face, right? Thou shalt not kill becomes, now let's parse out between premeditated murder and crimes of passion. It's adding more flesh to the skeleton structure of the Ten Commandments. Now, it's not adding all flesh. If you want all flesh, go to Leviticus and go by yourself because I'm not going to go there with you, all right? 
Or we'll just wait a couple years before we get to that. So I know that you're committed and you can't leave at that point. (laughs) It's not adding all flesh. It's adding a representative sample of like, all right, let's take these Ten Commandments and let's expand on a couple of them and see what we find. So we get a little bit more of God's face. All right? So the question is then, how is this portion of the story a paradigm for us? For those who are part of Israel's story, but we're not Israelites. We are followers of Jesus, who is the Messiah of Israel's story. It's all one story, but what do we do with this? Does a non-Jewish observer, are they supposed to keep the law? Are they not? Are there principles beneath the law that we need to get to to sort of apply to our own lives? And it becomes even more convoluted because when you start reading the specifics in the law, you will find inevitably laws that you like, laws that you don't like, and laws that make no sense. Like you'll, when I'm reading it, I see stuff like, hey, accept the stranger like they're one of your own family. And I think, oh yeah, I like that. That, that squares well with my modern sensibilities. And then you'll see other laws about how Israel is to treat its virgin daughters. And it pretty much sounds like they're to be treated like property. And I'm like, oh, that rubs me the wrong way right there. What do I, what do, I do with that? And then you'll see other laws that says, do not boil a goat in its mother's milk. Cool. <laughs> Check. <laughs> I don't know what to do with this. Laws you like, laws you don't. Laws that are entirely confusing to us because we're reading in a completely different context. So what do we do? How is this section of the story the paradigm for us? I think Peter ends puts it really well. This is how he puts it. He goes, when all is said and done, when I read the book of the covenant, the first thought that pops into my mind is not, how do I bring these laws in my life? How do I follow them today? Rather, the first thing I think of is, oh, now I see better how God dealt with his people soon after the exodus. Now, this is not to say that none of these laws has any relevance to our conduct, but I am not about to draw up a list of laws that apply or those that don't. Nor am I going to abstract principles from these laws to apply to current situations. I remain convinced that what we as Christians are supposed to glean from the book of the covenant is an understanding of the nature of God and what he requires of his people. What Jesus summarized as loving God and treating your neighbor as yourself. So if you remember nothing else from today, here's what I want you to remember. When we get to the book of the covenant, this is our response. Israel's God is our God, but Israel's law is not our law. Israel's God is our God, but Israel's law is not our law. We have a, uh, a tendency when we read the book of the law to look as the, the common denominator is the law itself, right? So we read the law and we think, okay, how does this apply to me? But the law is not the common denominator. God is the common denominator. The face of God, which is to love him exclusively and to love our neighbor as ourselves. God is the common denominator. So what we see in this story is the trans-historical God revealing his face in a very historical moment. God's face is the paradigm. And then in our own present day, we see the trans-historical God revealing himself in a very historical moment moment. Now, the specific nuts and bolts, they are manifestations of his face in a specific ancient context. Israel's God is our God. Israel's law is not our law. So we don't read the law asking, how does this apply to me? Rather, we read the law asking, what does this tell me about Israel's God, who is also my God? by how God established established Israel after saving her. So I like the way Mark Twain puts it. He goes, in essence, history doesn't repeat, it rhymes. That's kind of what we're getting at. God is the common denominator and God is acting in a specific way. He's revealing his face in a specific way to a specific people in a specific time. And the same God is revealing his face in a specific way to a specific people in a specific time thousands of years later. The law is not the common denominator. God is, because history doesn't repeat. Repeat, excuse me, it rhymes. So with that sort of foundation, let's jump into the text today. 
When I look at the, the book of the covenant, um, these three chapters, it's kind of separated into three um, criteria, to three sections, so to speak. And the very first section uh, that Moses gives of fleshing out the Ten Commandments is about right worship. It's dealing with how Israel is to worship their God. And it reads like this, Exodus 20, verse 22 through 26. God said to Moses, give this message to the people of Israel. You've experienced firsthand how I spoke with you from heaven. Don't make gods of silver and gods of gold and set them alongside me. Make me an earthen altar. Sacrifice your whole burnt offerings, your peace offerings, your sheep and your cattle on it. Every place where I cause my name to be remembered in your worship, I'll be there myself and bless you. If you use stones to make my altar, don't use dress stones. If you use a chisel on the stones, you'll profane the altar and don't use steps to climb to my altar because that will expose your nakedness. So the very first thing God sees fit to expound upon is how Israel is to worship and specifically the nature of the altar. What he's saying is, um, don't, don't worry about the details of the, of, the, of the altar. You know, just let it be an earthen altar. Don't use gold, don't use silver, uh, don't even use cut stones, use uncut stones. And it's, it's interesting, because you're wondering, why does God spend, you know, this first amount of time clarifying the nature of the altar? And especially in a sense, kind of like saying, hey, you know, don't spend too much time thinking about it or creating it. Just let it be earth. Why? Well, I think he knows something fundamental about humanity and especially broken humanity. He knows that our history is to concern ourselves with religious rites, religious practices, at the expense of the purpose behind them. He knows that we'll do anything possible to avoid what's most real about religion, which is to worship the living God. He knows that we'll spend a lot of time arguing about whether the sanctuary should have a carpet or not. Or we'll argue about what kind of music should be played instead of realizing that the whole reason why we gather in a carpeted or uncarpeted sanctuary, the whole reason we sing music is to the living God who liberated us out of Egypt. He knows that we concern ourselves with trivial non-essentials. Why? to avoid having to look God directly in the face. Because we know as soon as we look God in the face, we're gonna be undone. My grandfather died last summer. And so all our family, on my mom's side of the family, we converged um, for his funeral. And my mom and her sister and brother uh, and the days leading up to the funeral, they were just frenetic in their pace. They were everywhere. They were talking about everything and the preparations. And of course they were. Why? Because as soon as they stopped talking about the trivialities, as soon as they stopped and thought about their dad and how he's gone, they were going to break down. Right? It's the same thing. We concern ourselves with non-essentials because we know that once we stare God in the face about what's really essential about worship, we're going to break down. He's going to see us and we're going to know he sees us and we're going to look at our dirty hands and just say, oh Lord, forgive me. Christ have mercy. Lord have mercy. And so it's almost as if God is sort of preempting that and saying, hey, look, your nature is going to be caught up with how to worship me. You're going to fight about it a lot. So much that you're going to spend all your time fighting about how that you're not actually going to do it. So don't worry about it. Don't worry about the gold and the silver, just an earthen altar. That's it, and then bring your sacrifices there. That's what's important. We fight about the non-essentials, friends, because it's easier than looking God in the face and just saying, forgive me. So there's people in the room who we don't wanna look God in the face, and so the way we sort of get around that is we quibble about theology, theological points and doctrine. Or we, we quibble about knowledge. There's some people here um, who might not call yourselves a Jesus follower, and you're like, if I just knew a little bit more if I knew a little bit more, then I could make a reasonable you know, assessment. When we know deep down in our hearts, there's a current of water just swirling. Or pain, past pains, real pains that's been done. We focus on that instead of letting that go. Or just all these trivial questions. Why? Why can't we just say, forgive me? 
to God. And I think that was epitomized for me, a story that my friend told me. Um, she and her husband are pastors in Jersey, in a really, really tough part of Jersey. And um, they have a, a pre-K program. Their school doubles up as a pre-K program throughout the week. And she told the story, um, and, and consequently, because it's such a tough part of Jersey, um, the kids that they, they serve come from really unique situations. And it takes a lot of patience and grace. And um, there was this one time, she said, uh, the kids were walking in line. They were going somewhere. And there's this one child, we'll call him Timothy. And uh, Timothy um, did something to a child in front of him. And she saw it. And so she stops and she goes, hey, Timothy, ask for forgiveness. They're not allowed to say, I'm sorry. They have to ask for forgiveness. They have to say, will you forgive me? And he goes, no, no, I won't do it. And she's like, Timothy, I saw what you did. You need to ask for forgiveness from, from, from the child that you wronged. And, and he's like, nope. And then his story started changing, right? As all of our stories are prone to do. First, it was like, I didn't do it. And then later on, it was like, well, he deserved it. You know, like, we'll say anything. We'll say anything. We'll quibble about the non-essentials. And, and she has the, the, the line sit down and she's trying to talk with Tim and like, Tim, ask for forgiveness, ask for forgiveness. He's like, no, I will not do it. And then finally, she's so exhausted, she looks at him, she goes, Timothy, why won't you ask for forgiveness? And he starts crying, just breaks down. And he goes, what if he says no? What if he says no? And no sooner does he say that than the kid he wronged pipes up and starts shaking his head and going, I won't, I won't, ask me, ask me. And then all the kids in the line are going, ask, ask, ask. And so he asks for forgiveness. He barely gets it out. And all the kids have like pummeled Timothy and they've like jumped on him and they're cheering for him because he asked for forgiveness. I have no doubt that every single one of us in this room argue about non-essentials because we are afraid of looking Jesus in the face because we know as soon as we do, we're gonna be like, oh man, <laughs> forgive me. And what if he says no? But you're hearing from someone who asked a long time ago, ask, ask, he won't, he won't say no. All he knows how to do is say yes. That's the whole point of the story. And so in this first part of the book of the covenant, God is saying to Israel, don't worry about those non-essentials. Just show up and ask for forgiveness. And every time I will say yes, yes, yes. Because it's not about you, it's me. I'm doing the work. And then it moves on. So he talks about right worship. And then the next section of the book of the covenant deals with social responsibility, how Israelites are to treat other Israelites. And this section opens up, interestingly, it does. So it opens up right after right worship. Here's how it starts. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he will serve six years. The seventh year, he goes free for nothing. If he came in single, he leaves single. If he came in married, he leaves with his wife. If the master gives him a wife and she gave him sons and daughters, the wife and children stay with the master, he leaves by himself. But suppose the slave should say, I love my master, my wife, my children, I don't want my freedom. Then his master is to bring him before God into a door or doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl, a sign that he is a slave for life. Now when a man sells his daughter to be a handmaid, she doesn't go free after six years like the men. If she doesn't please her master, her family must buy her back. Her master does not have the right to sell her to foreigners since he broke his word to her. If he turns her over to his son, he has to treat her like a daughter. If he marries another woman, she retains all her full rights to meals, clothing, and marital relations. If he won't do any of these three things for her, she goes free for nothing. Now, you might be struck by an oddity, and it's quite simply this. Israel just came out of slavery in Egypt. And yet the first example we get of social laws for Israelites is about Hebrew slaves. What is that about? They just came out of a terrible situation in Egypt. And now the first thing they're dealing with is how to treat the Hebrew slaves among them. Now, as Peter ends asked, if Israel ought to be so concerned not to abuse others, why not just abolish slavery altogether? The author doesn't answer that question. The author takes it as a given that slavery is part of the context of the ancient world. And for those who are unaware 
Uh, slavery in the ancient world and the slavery that we are aware of, race-based slavery in America, are two completely different um, things, two completely different histories. But the author doesn't answer that question. The author doesn't say, um, why is it still around? He just accepts this is part of the system. Which brings, brings us to an interesting point. And, and I'll be honest, it's a point that um, rubs me the wrong way, but I don't know what to do with it completely. It's sort of what the, the natural conclusion would be here. That somehow God can hate unjust systems and still work through them. God can hate unjust systems and still use them for his purposes of healing. Now, I don't know what that means, and I don't know where we go from there, but that seems to be the point of what's going on. Because exactly what the author does is starts dealing with the proper treatment of Hebrew slaves. So he goes, you have no uh, eternal slavery. You have no perpetual slavery. After six years, the Hebrew slave is set free. There is no perpetual slavery. And then if the man sells his daughter into slavery, she is to be treated differently than the others. And so you saw that in the text, that she is to be treated as a daughter in certain situations. She's to be protected. And so that, friends, is interesting. We just moved from right worship into social responsibility. And the first two types, the first two groups of people that are addressed in the Book of the Covenant are male and female slaves. The marginalized and the disadvantaged are the first two types of people that God says, this is going to define who you are as my people. In the New Testament, there are sections of letters, of Paul's letters called uh, household codes. And they basically deal with Christian households. Uh, and they sort of read like this. So they read, you know, slaves serve your masters, masters serve your slaves, wives serve your husbands, husbands love your wife. So it deals with parents and children, with husbands and wives. It deals with these contexts, these, these social and economic relationships. And they have their own questions that are brought up by them. But here's what's something that's really fascinating about it. In classic Stoicism in the first century, in classic Stoicism, um, books about laws, books about philosophy, books about moral transformation, which is really what we're getting at here, were reserved for men, and for being specific, for powerful men. So the, the, the famous example is Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, right? No one could read Meditations unless you are a, a powerful man in Roman society. That was for you, because moral transformation was open for you. And yet what we see, what we see in the household codes and in the Book of the Covenant is that's not the case. Look at how John Howard Yoder puts it. He goes, the admonition of the household codes are addressed first to the subject, to the slave before the master, to the children before the parents, to the wives before the husbands. Here begins the revolutionary innovation in the early Christian style of ethical thinking, for which there is no explanation in borrowing from other contemporary cultural sources. The subordinate person in the social order is addressed as a moral agent. Here we have a faith that assigns personal moral responsibility to those who had no legal or moral status in their culture and makes them decision makers. See, in the other sort of Greco-Roman text, moral transformation was just available to powerful men. But in the Christian writing, um, and it's, it's not revolutionary because you see it in the Book of the Covenant as well, everyone is addressed. Everyone, no matter what situation they're in in the political economic system, they are addressed as capable of moral transformation. And so the first people addressed in the Book of the Covenant are the male and female slaves. And you, you, you would ask that, you say, well, why else protect unless there's another value that God sees of the way he's trying to train his people? So it's almost as if the face of God is saying, look, I'm going to talk to the marginalized of society first. I'm going to talk to those who have been most disadvantaged first, not the privilege of society. And it's not that the privilege of society don't get to see my face. They do. But they're already put first in a million and one ways. But in my kingdom, I need to counterbalance that. And so the marginalized 
are talked to first. The marginalized are brought right into the center. It's as if God is saying, how you treat the weakest among you will form you most into my image, into my family. And then it moves on. So we talk about social responsibility with Hebrew slavery, then it moves to laws about violence. And we get into the minutia of, if you strike your mother and father, death. If it's premeditated, death. If it's an accident, you can flee. If a person recovers, fine. Not fine as in like, okay, it's fine, but like you have to pay a fine. So if a person recovers, pay a fine. It's not, it's not fine that they got hurt, all right? If someone loses an eye, then they're set free. So you have all these laws about violence and parsing it out. And there's a lot that could be said. I find one uh, aspect that's really interesting is this concept of the cities of refuge. Cities of refuge. So uh, what this was, and this was really unique um, to the Israelite context, if someone accidentally killed some, if a Hebrew accidentally killed another Hebrew, they could flee to a set city um, that was where they would be safe, where they would find a sanctuary. There was an interesting New Yorker article just a couple weeks back about um, a woman who accidentally struck a child in her car, totally not her fault. She was aware the child just darted in front of the street and killed him. And it was sort of exploring uh, this category of people that we really don't have anything to say to. I mean, she, she talked about how everyone was always saying, it's not your fault, it's not your fault. She was like, fine, it's not my fault. The child's still dead. What do you want me to do with this? And it talked about how her life just sort of spiraled out of control. And she, in, in the article, was showing that there were self-help books for every type of person possible, except for someone who accidentally kills another. In the article, um, David Walt, who was the rabbi of Sinai Temple in Los Angeles, goes, there's no statue of limitations on self-imposed pain. Maimonides, I don't know if I'm saying that right, <laughs> the great medieval Jewish philosopher says that in the collective grief, the individual's grief is assuaged. So what you find in cities of refuge, the purpose behind them was to address the one who felt like their life was over and to offer them a place to rebuild through collective grief. And as this, the woman in the article writes, she goes, the Torah was talking about me. The Torah was talking about me, she remembers thinking. Gray was struck by the specificity of its prescriptions, which suggested that lives like hers were once contemplated with sophistication by the highest authorities. If I had been exiled to a city of refuge, I might not have needed exile from myself, she once wrote. She was moved by the idea that in such cities, a person like her could participate fully in society without shame. I love that there was a way of recognizing the true devastation that's been wrought, the harm that's been done without condemning the individual, she said. That's what I'm looking for, to live in the world with acceptance and with opportunity but also with the acknowledgement that in running over this child, something terrible happened and it deserves attention. The reason why I bring up cities of refuge because you see that theme throughout the book of the covenant. God is exploring all contingencies of what might happen in a broken world. And he's exploring all contingencies for the broken and the marginalized and the disadvantaged of what could happen. He's saying, yes, it will happen, but it won't define us. It won't define you there will be possibility for you to rebuild and to grieve together and to continue to worship me. So we move from laws about violence to laws about property and restitution, which I'm not gonna go into because so far as I know, none of us own any ox or donkeys or anything like that. So you're like, all right, I mean, or fields. Maybe some of us own fields. That might be more you know, readily available. But so we move from property and restitution. So, all right, recap, sorry, recap. So we started with right worship, how to rightly worship God. Then we go to laws about social responsibility, violence and property, how to treat your neighbor. And then in the third and the final part of the book of the covenant, God does this interesting thing and it sort of intermingles the two. So you'll read certain laws that deal with how to rightly worship God. And then you'll read certain laws about how to serve your neighbor, your Hebrew neighbor. And then in some of them, they'll sort of interweave and you'll hear that worshiping God is serving your neighbor. So then it sort of talks about like, hey, if you're lending uh, to a Hebrew, don't lend with interest. Don't charge any interest to them. 
Don't sacrifice to other gods. Don't delay making your offerings from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. I'm just gonna leave that one there for a second. Don't, wow, okay, all right, got it, tough crowd. Don't delay in making your offerings from the fullness of your harvest, from the outflow of your, press, of your presses. And then it goes to serving your enemies. When you come upon your enemy's ox or donkey going astray, bring it back. When you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you would hold back from setting it free, help set it free. Then it goes to serving the poor. You shall not pervert justice due to the poor and their lawsuits. And then it moves to serving justice, an interesting turn. You shall not side with the majority to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to the poor in a lawsuit. So serve the poor, but also serve justice. So don't be partial to the poor if it's unjust. And then it moves to serving the refugees. Do not oppress the alien, for you know the heart of an alien, for you are aliens in the land of Egypt. So there's this interesting intermingling between worship and social responsibility. The two are kind of like being driven together in the book of the covenant. And you wonder, well, how is that the paradigm? And for us as Christians, we're immediately drawn to a sermon that, that Jesus gave in Matthew 5. And the classic Sermon on the Mount where he writes, if you come to the altar and you remember you have something against your brother, leave it there. Leave your gift and go reconcile, then come back. Or in the letter of 1 John, if anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this commandment from him, whoever loves God must love his brother as well. It's as if God is saying uh, in the book of the covenant and to Christians that worshiping me is how you treat one another. So if you come to bring a gift to the altar and you realize you have something against someone, you can't offer that gift. Go reconcile first. The two are one. You're being given a new way to see the world or the, the brilliant phrase by um, Richard Hayes, the New Testament theologian. There's a conversion of the imagination happening. You're being given a new way to see the world. I heard this song by The Brilliance um, this last week and I just absolutely fell in love with it. Um, and the opening line goes like this. It goes, when I look into the face of my enemy, I see my brother, I see my brother. That's not natural to look into the face of your enemy and see your brother and see your sister, see your mother. That's not natural. There's a conversion of the imagination happening where God is telling his people, hey, worshiping me is seeing the face of your brother and your enemy. So you can't pass by your enemy's ox anymore. You can't do that. You gotta help the enemy's ox. I'll let you draw parallels of what that means for us in our own day. So how do we begin to even do that? How do we begin to even allowing our imaginations to be converted? Well, I love this quote by G.K. Chesterton. He puts it this way. He goes, we make our friends, we make our enemies, but God makes our next door neighbor. Jesus spoke not of one's duty towards humanity. He didn't say love humanity as yourself. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. The duty towards humanity may often take the form of some choice, which is personal or even pleasurable. That duty may be a hobby. It may even be a dissipation, but we have to love our neighbor because he is there. A much more alarming reason for a much more serious operation. Precisely because he may be anybody, he is everybody. He is a symbol because he is an accident. The question is not, do you love God or how do you love God? The question is, do you know your next door neighbor? Like your literal next door neighbor. Do you know who lives in your building? Have you served them before? Have you heard their story? The question is, do you know your roommates or your spouse? Have you served like your literal one? How have you served them today? Because in so doing, you have also served God. Now, of course we fail. Of course we do. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He's the one who provides perfect atonement so that we don't have to keep the law fully. We rest on him. But in starting to serve your actual neighbor, don't love humanity as yourself. Love your neighbor 
as yourself, your literal neighbor. In starting to serve and love your literal neighbor, you will find that they are also the enemy and they are the poor and they are, um, there's injustice and they are the refugee. You will start doing all of those things. And so he moves from there in the book of the covenant and we move to laws about the sabbatical year. And we hear that for six years, you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year, you shall let it rest and lie fallow so that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the wild animals may eat. And for six days, you shall work. But on the seventh day, you shall rest so that your ox and your donkey may have relief and your homeborn slave and the resident alien may be refreshed. Friends, you see how radical this is? God is saying you honor the Sabbath, which is a religious command because of a social purpose so that the poor and the alien can rest. You let your field lie fallow for a whole year so that even the wild animals can eat. Now that begs an interesting question as we consider policies. Are we considering even the wild animals who are gonna be influenced by these policies? God has a wide imagination for this ecology and this people that he's creating. It's all connected, he's saying. The religious purposes have social impact and social import. And then he finishes by talking about festivals. He goes, there are gonna be three festivals throughout the year that you have to keep. God is commanding his people to party three times a year. What? I, I will follow that God just for that alone. He goes, no, 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 I know you're gonna to wanna to continue working. No, stop. You have to stop working and party three times a year. And the choicest of your first fruits of your ground, you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. Worship and sociality are the same. And brokenness will not overcome the joy of being in God's family. Now I know we covered a lot today. We talked about how Exodus 19 and 20 is the skeletal structure of God's face. And then 20 through 23, these nuts and bolts are kind of fleshing out that face. Talk about how worship, worship is where we start. We are to love God with all we have. And he said, don't worry about the non-essentials. Remember the purpose behind it, which is to see my face. And then he moved to social responsibility, addressing various contingencies, going, there's gonna be brokenness in the world. Here's how you're to respond to it. Oh, and also, every single person among you, not just the powerful, are capable of moral transformation and are capable of being addressed by me. And then he moved further and he sort of brought those two together and saying, worship is how you treat your neighbor. Worship is social responsibility. So make sure to remember your Sabbaths and remember your parties because free people rest and celebrate. And he ends by saying, and give away 10% of your profits, the first fruit, give them away to the priest. Why does he do that? Well, in a sense, what he's saying, I mean, generosity and sacrifice is ensuring that we don't create another Egypt. We don't create another people where we have the really, really rich and the really, really poor. We all pull together our resources to take care of one another. And all of this, it can be encapsulated in the idea God's people must not show any sign that they are becoming like the Egyptians. All of these actions, all of these nuts and bolts laws are tangible, concrete ways to remember their story, to remember where they came from and to see the face of God. And before we as Christians say, okay, I got it. Let's apply these laws. I sort of see the principles behind them. Let's apply it. The very last law in the book of the covenant is don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. <sighs> All goes out the window. <laughs> How is the law a paradigm for us? I'm gonna invite the worship team back up and close with this question. How is the law a paradigm for us? Because Israel's God is our God, but Israel's law is not our law. What the law tells us about is our father and his face and what he cares about. We see the face of our God in these laws. You are a free people. You have been saved to be servants, to be worshipers of the most high God. Freely you have received, therefore freely give. Give it all. Service, grace, love, 
mercy, forgiveness, give it all away. It's as if this can all be summed up in hold nothing back from your God, which is just another way of saying hold nothing back from your neighbor. Or to quote the amazing Victor Hugo, to love another person is to see the face of God. Will you pray with me? Father, we, uh, we come up against a really tough section of Scripture. And we call it Scripture. We know it's part of this holy story that forms our lives, that we encircle, and that we, we remember. We try to remember how you interacted with your people Israel to learn the type of God you are, to learn about the type of kingdom you're bringing about. And we confess there there's certain things we really like in it and there's certain things we don't like and there's certain many things we don't understand. But your son summed it all up by saying, the law is to love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, and to love our neighbor like our literal neighbor as ourself. So I pray for each person in this room. I pray that they would not feel condemned, that they would know that they can look into your face and ask for forgiveness. Ask, ask, and you will say yes. You will enrapture with your love. And I pray that as we go from this place, that we would actually take steps to know our neighbor, to know their story, to push into a friendship that serves them, that we would serve one another in this room, that we would know one another's stories, their pains, their joys, their sorrows, that we would take steps to love, to love not just in word but in action. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you're alive. We praise you. It's in your name. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.